Great to see you all here on this Labor Day weekend. So glad you made it a priority to be here and excited to be continuing in our series in the book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. Part of our human experience is to acknowledge that there's certain laws that govern how our universe works. Those of you that have been around a little bit for a bit, you would even acknowledge that you've experienced some of these to be true, like things like gravity. When your foot catches something and you're walking and you discover gravity, or for us from the Midwest, uh, ice reminds us of gravity. There's a lot of things in our world that govern things well in the law of thermodynamics. I don't even know what that means. Mathematics, there's laws that govern math. and the economic, obviously, supply and demand. There's things that govern the way things work. And this morning, I want to point to the same reality in the spiritual world, that there's things that, that govern how things work spiritually. You might remember even in the past year, some of the different times we've talked about that. Remember even this summer, Bill Barry was talking about the law of the harvest. Do you remember that? The idea of you reap what you sow. And that's kind of one of the things that we've experienced in our own life. This morning, I want to introduce you to a law I've, uh, I've heard another pastor talk about by the name of James McDonald. And this is, we'll see directly in the text. This is the law. Pride plus time equals judgment. And it's uh, evidence in James 4, 6, where it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's one of those things that maybe we've experienced ourselves. We've seen someone experience this rule or this this reality in our life. And Daniel 4 is definitely an example of that, where pride plus time finally leads to judgment. In Neb's story, Nebuchadnezzar, if you're newer here, uh, Neb's story, there's definitely cause and effect in this chapter where you see that his pride ultimately leads to judgment. Now, as I was studying this week, my first idea was like, you know, that's the, that's the direction we'll take this sermon, and that, that's what this passage is about. But the more I spent time in it and praying over it, I came to realize that there's something bigger than that principle there. There's something that's more important, I would propose, that we understand. You see, the whole Old Testament, in fact, all of Scripture isn't the story about the men or the women involved in it. It's the story of God. It's His story. So we can get confused and think this is a story about Neb, this is a story about Daniel, but the truth is this is really a story about God and we reveal things about His character in this text. And what I would say, what I believe the text reveals, is the extremes that God will go to pursue the lost. The extremes that God will go to pursue the lost. You see, he's been attempting to woo, I don't know if that's a word we still use or not, to woo King Neb for the past 30 years. Think about it. All the things, whether it's the same things we see today, God's creation, or whether it's the extravagance that he's lived in, or the more tangible things, we've heard the revelation of this dream to, uh, to him some 30 years prior, or last week what happened in our story, God again wooing King Neb with the way that he responded to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They survived the, the fiery furnace. All of these things to reveal God's supernatural power and to appeal to him for what? That he would just acknowledge that he's God. 
that he would finally come to the conclusion, the same thing that we face today, not acknowledging God. Romans 1.21 describes this issue. For although, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So because of that, God on occasion has to go to some pretty big extremes to get our attention. Neb's extreme today is beyond typical, but nonetheless, it's his pursuit. And here's an important thing to understand about God's character, is he will let you crash hard in order to get your attention. Let that sink in for a second. He will let you crash really hard in order to get your attention. In fact, I would propose, take that a step further, that he will cause you to crash hard to get your attention. We'll see in the text today. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this story of a king, your pursuit of this king from 2,600 years ago that's still relevant in our life today. I pray that you'd speak to us through this text, that we'd get a, a little clearer picture of who you are in the extreme love that you have for us, that you chase us down regardless. You're not content with separation, God. You pursue us. We thank you for that. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So, so far, we've had some failed attempts at pursuing uh, Neb, as I mentioned. I mentioned a few of them. I don't know if you've been in that pursuit before, maybe with someone you're interested in. I was thinking about my first crush in first grade with a, a little girl by the name of Lucy, and all of the attempts that I made to get, we've worked through it though, Adrian and I, I'm past Lucy. Uh, all these attempts to get Lucy's attention, whether it was chasing her on the playground, whether, whether it was trying to uh, show off in class with my athletic prowess, nothing seemed, uh, yeah, uh, Josh, thanks for laughing at that. Uh, uh, nothing seemed to get her attention but in the same case, this is what, what, what God's at this place where he's like, you know what, I think it's time to turn and redirect my approach and allow to kind of turn up the dial a little bit. And it's neat in this passage, if you want to glance at the text yourself, Daniel 4 will be working through this together. This is written from King Neb's perspective and it's in retrospect. Does that make sense? So he's, he's looking back and he's reflecting on this experience that's already transpired. So he's, he's, he's reflecting on this. So it's from the king's perspective. Look at what he has to say. You see God's already done a work in his life. It says, King Neb, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Neb, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree. We'll stop there for a moment. A few things to, to notice that's first clear that Neb is passionate about getting this message out to everyone. Look who, who it's written to. He's making sure he's like to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. In other words, 
every single person, I want you to hear my testimony. My testimony. This is, this is basically, this is King Neb's testimony. And if you don't understand what a big deal this was, at that time, Neb was the most powerful person on the planet. He was successfully leading at that time the first world empire in the history of man. So he's a pretty pretty big deal, you might say. A lot of people would even argue that he was the most powerful man to ever live, even on our planet, history books would point to. I was talking to my dad about that this week, and he's like, hey, it's kind of cool that we're going to be with the most wise person, Solomon of all time, and the most powerful person, Neb of all time, in heaven. It's kind of cool to, to think in that perspective. But as he gives his testimony, he describes where he was at when God's pursuit started, or it started to get intense. It says, I, Neb, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. At ease describes more than just comfortable. It's not just like, oh, he's on the lazy boy. It's basically saying he was at a place where he's completely self-sufficient. Completely, if you will, the idea of being at ease is in a secure position. He had locked in. He was at the top of his game. Sounds a lot like King David's story, doesn't it? Before his fall. Describes him too as prospering. The Aramaic word for that is re'enin, which parallels with the Hebrew word, which is just re'enin, which means to be luxuriant. So he was definitely, he was living in the, the lap of luxury. And when you're in that place, I would propose, sometimes that's the most vulnerable spot you could be in. I like the story, I heard this, uh, of uh, someone telling a story about Muhammad Ali was on, a, was on an airplane ride. And the stewardess was walking by and, and told Muhammad Ali, well, make sure you, you, you buckle up. And, he, and his response to her is kind of his, his candor was, Superman doesn't need a, a seatbelt. And, uh, and her response as quick as attack is, Superman don't need no plane either. Now buckle your buckle. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was, uh, that was awesome because you can get to this idea of thinking you've arrived and you're in a place where you don't need help or you don't need anything, you're self-sufficient. It's a dangerous place, I would propose, when we're in a prosperous place. And if you think about it, this story is us. We're in the most prosperous time period of, of ever. We're in the most prosperous country. We're in the most prosperous part of the country. We're in one of the most prosperous towns. I mean, if that's not enough to get our point. And the scary thing is, is when you're in that place, that sometimes... When God has the hardest time getting our attention. God has the hardest time getting our attention. My, my best friend is a church planner. He planted a church in, in Brentwood, California. And he kept just reporting to me, just being like, man, this, this group of people is just so hard to reach because they have everything, or at least they're convinced they have everything. It can be a dangerous place, prosperity. That's when God doesn't mind, as we mentioned, turning up the, attention, the, the, the temperature in order to get our attention. So here he enters in to shake things up. And what does he describe in verse 7 through 18? I'll just recap it for you. Basically, he describes this dream that Neb has, where he's seeing this image of this massive tree, and all the world is being blessed from this tree, and people finding shade under it, participating and being fed from it. It's an awesome tree. That part of the dream wasn't disturbing to him. He kind of liked that picture, because he could relate with it. 
the part that was disturbing was in the dream when the Holy One comes down and says, you know what, we're going to chop this tree down. All of a sudden, that's what woke him out of, I imagine, his sleep. And all of a sudden, he starts decreeing things for the guys to come, his posse, to come and explain this. He, he loves to decree things, if you haven't noticed in this book so far. So he decrees, he, he pleads for these guys to come explain this dream to him. I find it interesting that he goes to the same old magicians and leaders that probably some of the same guys that 30 years ago had, had blown it. And they, they, they were stumped. No pun intended. They didn't know the answer to what the dream was about. And so finally, he comes to the place. He's like, all right, let's check with Daniel and see what it actually means. I think it's interesting how we don't like to, to go to the person maybe that we know is going to give us a good response, that's going to speak truth to us, because usually that involves some degree of change in our life, right? Sometimes we avoid getting counsel from people that you're like, ah, they're going to say it like it is. I, I like this uh, quote from a pastor named Jeff Lozinger. He, sa- he says this, said, God only wants for us what we would want for us if we were smart enough. I thought that was good. God only wants for us what we would want for us if we were smart enough. And here, if he was smart enough, he had seen that this dream wasn't exactly subtle. It could have been the, the, couldn't be much clearer of a picture of him, that God wants to be at the center of his life. Daniel, when called before in verse 19, then goes on to explain things. Listen to what he says. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was the name that the king had given him. Who gives people new names? Uh, He was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord... May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the end of the earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. Listen to this, verse 22. It is you, O king. Who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time passes over him. Seven years. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Listen to this. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time, listen to this, that you know that heaven rules. That was a lot there, but pretty crazy interpretation of this dream. If you don't get it in summary, basically, after hearing the dream, Daniel's a little bit hesitant 
to explain it to him. Wouldn't you be a little bit tentative to go before the most powerful person in the, on the planet and tell him, hey, it's about you. But Daniel at first, and I, I don't necessarily think it was fear that he was hesitant to tell him. I think it was more of a compassion. We can see that in the text that he was dismayed and alarmed. This idea that he had most likely developed a, a genuine concern. And he even says that in the text. He says, I wish it was about anybody else. I wish this, this story was about some other king, your enemies. I wish it was anybody but you. But unfortunately, and this is the important thing to understand, is when you have truth, it's our responsibility to share it. And here he does. He says, it's you. You are the tree that's about to get, that's about to get chopped down. It's you. You're, this description is you. Probably tough words for the king to hear. You're like, oh man, bummer. What do you mean? But he, he explains to him, he says, you're going to be kept, your kingdom's going to be kept safe. You're going to be a stump. But for seven years, you're going to live like an ox. You're going to live like an ox. And then at first you're like, well, that's the most terrible thing that could happen to somebody, right? Can you imagine getting that word that like, okay, today you're going to start, Noah, you're going to start living on all fours and eating grass and living like a, an ox for the next seven years. At first, you're, you hear that and you're like, what? what? That's the most terrible thing. But what if your perspective changes and thinks eternally that this was the most kind thing God could have done to him to pursue him? He knew what it was going to take to bring the, key, the king to his knees. He knew that it wasn't going to come from his wooing and his attempts at impressing him. It was going to take humbly bringing him to his knees. Often it's necessary, we've maybe seen this in our own life or stories of ones we love, that we hit the bottom before we finally look up, right? Often we have to hit the bottom before we finally look up. And the hope is, see at the end, he says, you're going to stay this way until the time that you know that heaven rules. I thought that was an awesome description there. Like, hey, until you get it of who the boss is, you're going to stay like a cow. And he's pointing this out, and it's a, 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 a warning for every proud ruler for sure, but it's also a picture of the ends that our God will go to pursue the lost. Verse 27, this was his last warning. It says, Therefore, O king, this is Daniel speaking still, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may per- perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel shows compassion where, where not only does he interpret the dream, he says, let me, let me give you a, a little advice, Mr. King, Mr. Ruler of the world. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop it. In fact, he uses the, the term to break off. And you think about sin in our own life. It's not often an option to wean off of it. It's something that just needs to be broken off or cut off. And he, it's interesting that he says, he says, stop doing this and start doing this. We describe that as replacement theology. It's not just about quitting, it's about replacing things. It's about, it's about introducing new things to righteous living. And I find it fascinating how he describes right living. It's summarized as showing mercy to the oppressed. Isn't that interesting? That out of all the things he probably could have addressed in King Neb's life, whether it's 
sexual sin, whether it's the opulence that he's living in, whether it's who knows what, he chose, you know what, why don't you start by taking care of the oppressed? We don't know the background here. Likely, he was taking advantage of the poor to build his kingdom. Maybe that was it. But either way, I I love this quote by Beth Moore. You'll see it on the screen there. Sitting in luxury without concern for the oppressed shows we've been corrupted by our Babylon. That's an interesting quote, an interesting idea. One of the, the clues that maybe you're, that you've lost some sensitivity is your lack of concern for the poor, that you've just grown numb to it around us. But ultimately, what gets in the way of him submitting finally is that his, his pride's in the way. He's like, well, why wouldn't you listen to Daniel? Does Daniel not have a resume now that you'd be like, well, I probably should listen to him because he's in tune with Almighty God. Like, don't you think at this point, what kind of pride would you have to have to ignore his warning? It's crazy to think, but he does in his arrogance, basically says, well, let's see if God actually does what he says he's going to do because I'm not changing Verse 28, God did exactly what he said. All this came upon King Neb. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of myself? While the words were still in the king's mouth, There fell a voice from heaven, O King Neb, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time, seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Neb. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Anybody read text in scripture and be like, are you kidding me? Like how crazy is this story? The most powerful man on the person. God had given him 12 months to get it worked out. He's like, man, I'm going to give you another year. Maybe turn, give you another chance. Probably Neb's thinking to himself, like, all right, I think I'm in the clear. Hasn't happened. You know, I'm good. And he's back to walking around, kind of checking out his his kingdom. He's built, and what does he he say? He says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. How crazy is that? The the ego, the pride is evident there. God responds immediately. While the words were literally still on his mouth, God pronounces from heaven, just to make sure there's no confusion there. He says, listen, let let me explain to you, Neb, right now, because of what you just said, your your thoughts, uh, your, your pride verbalized, because he's, he's, it says he's speaking that. Like, how crazy is that? So he's saying that because of your words, because of your pride, I'm going to bring you down right now. In case anybody thinks that God's not hearing or seeing what's going on, a lot of people think of a distant God. God's very aware of what's happening in our minds, our thoughts, our words. He's very active and present in that. 
It's easy for us to see a story like that and see his response, and you're just like, what a crazy, arrogant king to be so prideful. It's easy to, to look at stories like that, but isn't that really our same response to our successes? Look what I've done. Look at this business I've built. Look at this, look at this house. Look at, this, look at the, the, this car. Look at this accomplishment. Look at this. It's so easy for us to toot our own horn and to think we're all that. To think that, to come to that exact same conclusion that Neb did. God had to introduce him to an important law that pride plus time equals judgment. Eventually, God opposes the proud. And we see it there that it's, it's interesting because in one day, the most powerful man on the planet went from ruling a kingdom, ruling the world, if you will, to being on all four eating grass. Being on all four. How crazy is that? What a reminder that God's like, don't forget, I'm ruling over all of this. In, in case we're confused on this planet still today of who's reigning over all of this, this was a, a good reminder of who's in control. This most extensive description of insanity in Scripture, it's a type of insanity where you literally think that you're an animal. It's actually, we, we've attached terms to that because it's still a present condition. Isn't that interesting? Zoanthropy is where someone thinks that they're an animal. Boanthropy is where they believe that the specific animal is that they're a cow. So, so uh, I love how we diagnose everything, but, but Neb had boanthropy and, and was literally on all fours. It describes for seven years, it wasn't a short period of time, living like an animal. In that time, God preserved his kingdom. You see a glimpse of God's grace and kindness there. But finally, after seven years, he finally gets his man. He finally gets his attention. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Neb, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is, uh, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay in his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. Listen to the last conclusion. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful testimony, if you will. The indication of his starting to come back was what? He finally lifted his eyes to heaven. He got his eyes finally off of maybe his, all of his accomplishments, finally getting to the point where he's on his back, well, literally on all fours probably, looking up, finally acknowledges and you see his language changes a lot. What does he say? Describes, he says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him. Where was that 
pre-cal. You know what I mean? Like, where, 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 was, that, where was that before? Like, that, that wasn't a part of his vocabulary. I love the reoccurring theme of describing him, God, as most high. Finally, he gets it. He's confused about this prior, but now he understands. He concludes that he has a dominion that's everlasting. Remember, that was a concern for Neb. He was concerned that his dominion was going to last forever. Now he's finally like, you're the one that has dominion from generation to generation. You're the God of gods, the Most High. And his key conclusion, able to humble those who walk in pride. Talk about somebody that's able to talk, say like, a lot of people are like, yeah, I, I understand this attribute of God because I've experienced it. Like, no, Neb like, could really make that statement. Trust me, I get it. He's a God who can humble the, the proud. And he experienced that himself. Pretty cool picture of God's pursuit of a king. I was thinking about that. Wouldn't we rather respond to his pursuit on the front side when God's still in the wooing mode. Isn't that so much better if you can be like, oh yeah, I'm just impressed with God's greatness. He's awesome. Instead of him having to readjust his approach, because the truth is, that's so much easier. Wouldn't you rather move towards humility when, when, he's, when he's pursuing you, when he's wooing you, instead of when he's slamming you on your back, in this case? You think about that. How do we pursue humility? A lot of times people think like, well, I just need to be humble. The truth is God doesn't call us to be humble. We're not commanded to be humble. We're told to humble ourselves. It's an action. It's steps that we take because soon as we think we're humble, then you're like back to right where you started. I'm the most humble person I know. You're like, that, 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 that's a problem, you see? I, I was listening to a, a story of a, a pastor that was struggling with humility, and he went to another pastor, and he said, you know, what would be something that would really help me with my pride issues and, and really bring me down? He's like, you know, why don't you try this? He said, why don't you cut out a box, kind of like what you see in downtown uh, areas, and why don't you write out the gospel message and just walk around all day just wearing that box and, and proclaiming Jesus Christ to everyone that you come across? And he the pastor's like, all right, I'll do it. And so he did, he wore the box all day and he, he got to the, the end of the day and, and he, he's taken off the box and he's like, man, I don't know any other pastor that would have done this today, what I did. <laughs> and he's like, man, you, you haven't gotten there quite yet. There's still some, some work to do. It's not something you be, become, it's steps that you take to pursue humility. We're told in, in, in scripture, uh, we're told to, to humble ourselves. It's an action it's a step that we take. Here's a couple of proposed ideas of, of choices that we can make that can move us towards humility. The first one, we can see them on the screen there, is to confess sin. Like, well, that sounds like a very churchy uh, response, but think about that for a moment. What is confessing sin? It's bringing the ugliness of who we are to the light, Right? It's, it's putting the spotlight on dark areas of our life and saying, that's part of who I am still. You see, pride loves to cover our sin and tries to ignore it. You see, but, but, but confession is actually putting the spotlight. That's a step to move towards humility. I was having lunch with a pastor this week, and uh, sometimes you hear yourself talk, and you're like, where's that? That's what, what you're saying, you're like, where did that come from? I was, I was sharing with them, and I was like, yeah, I was kind of 
crazy of me to, to start after just working here for six months and starting a, a building project. So I was reflecting on it later. I was like, no, that was me saying, aren't you impressed that after six months I started a building project? Like, you know, what, what kind of ugly, subtle things are in our own life, in our own pride. I was talking and having lunch with a, another friend this week, and he was telling the story. We were talking about Facebook a little bit, and he's like, man, if I'm real honest with myself, when I look at the, the posts that I make, really, they're, they're, they're all an expression of pride. Look at this. Look what I've done. Look how much I know. Look at this. Look who I, look what I just ate, you know, like what, like, uh, like weird, weird stuff. No, just, just teasing for anybody that's ca- captured meals on photo. But, uh, but, but you, 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 uh, you, you get the idea the, the the root, when we actually start getting honest with ourselves about our sin and how it's kind of worked its way into some pretty dark places, confessing sin is a healthy step towards humility. Another one that you see there is to verbalize dependence. thought it was interesting that, that, uh, that King Neb verbalized his non-dependence, uh, that he's actually talking to himself as he's walking around his, in his kingdom. But what, what does verbalizing it, uh, your dependence look like? I would propose that prayer is verbalizing your dependence. Prayer is that. Prayer is going and saying, God, I can't do this. I need your help. God, God, rescue me from this. God, God, change this in me. All prayer is, is verbalizing your dependence. God's like, finally, they're a place that I can work. Finally, they're, ver- they're, they're acknowledging their need for me. That's what prayer is. Prayers are, are, are acknowledging our weakness and his greatness. I was watching this, this last week on uh, Netflix with my wife, uh, a movie called Gifted Hands. I don't know if you've seen that before. It's a somewhat of a, the story of Ben Carson, who's one of the presidential candidates. He's a uh, pretty noted surgeon. I thought it was interesting. He's the, he was the first person to ever successfully, you might not know this, to, to separate babies that were connected at the head at birth. He was the first person to, to successfully do that in surgery. It's interesting in his story, different times as played by Cuba Gooding Jr., and uh, different times in this story, every time before a major surgery, it showed him pausing and calling out to God to help me do this. I can't do this. I need you to, to, to do this. And I was like, that's the picture of our, our dependence. I can't do it on my own. I, I'm in need of you. I need you to intervene. Third thing here, suggestion. Choose to humble yourself. You're like, Aren't you just kind of repeating the same thing that it says right there? Choose to humble yourself. Let me explain what I mean. A few words that I think could be introduced into a lot of our vocabulary. How about this one? I was wrong. How about this one? I was sorry. I, I am sorry. I blew it. Those three words could change things drastically in the humble meter of your life. If we were able to acknowledge, like, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I blew it, I shouldn't have done that. That was, that was this ugly part of me coming out. These are things that move us towards pursuing humility. Those are healthy words in everyone. If you think about that or the other aspects of that, of humbling yourself, is to be teachable, to not be a know-it-all. Like, it gets exhausting being that person, being, I've got it all figured out. And you know when you're talking to that person, Right? It's exhausting. You're like, there's nothing I'm going to say to you that you don't already know. Like, what, 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 if, what if we humbled ourselves and became more teachable that I don't have it all solved? 
I don't have all the answers. I don't have it figured out. Being teachable. Along that same vein, if you think about serving others, is another act of humility. How we humble ourselves, putting somebody else's needs before our own. All steps that we could take towards humility. You see, Jesus was the ultimate display of humility, right? You think about that. The God of the universe, creator, spoke things into existence, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down in the form of a man, live a perfect life, and, a, and allow my creation to hang me on a cross. How unbelievable is that? that? How extreme of humility is displayed in that? Talk about modeling for us, that degree of serving. And then if you take it a step further, think about what he also does in his humility. He's willing, so many people come to Christ when we're at the end of our ropes. I've tried everything else. I keep failing. Okay, God, you can have my life. And Jesus is like, all right, bring it on. Let's go. Let's do this thing. What humility is evidenced even in his response to us taking Neb after he had tried everything. Finally, he's a cow, and he's like, all right, God, you're the, you're the most high. And God's like, all right, let's do this. Now we, can, now we can move. The humility that's even evident there. See, the truth is, this story is a picture of God pursuing a king, but really... Your life is the story of God's pursuit of a king or a queen, right? Isn't your life, when you reflect on it, when you look back on the whole deal, isn't it all about his wooing, his pursuing of you? If you think about it, it's either him pursuing to get your attention to start with, and then it becomes his pursuing to keep your attention, right? So my question for us, just in conclusion, is what do we ha- what's it going to require Are we going to respond to his wooing or his flattening, right? Which one are we going to respond to? I would propose it's a lot easier to respond to his wooing and skip some of the the, the grass eating, right? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this just practical, clear picture of your character, of the ends that you'll go to to chase after us. I thank you that you have an eternal perspective. And even sometimes when we're in the middle of your pursuit, it doesn't feel very good. doesn't feel very loving. But the truth is, from an eternal perspective, it's the most kind thing you can do. In a thousand and ten thousand years from now, as we, re- we reflect back on this little glimpse, this little blip on the timeline of our life, We'll be so thankful, whatever it took for you to bring us to our knees. God, I pray that you'd help us in that, that those of us that that you did get our attention, that you'd keep our attention, that we wouldn't wander off and stray and get diverted, that you keep bringing us back. I thank you for being the God who pursues kings. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Some reason, as I'm singing that song, I'm picturing Neb with his hand raised and like, "Here I stand. My your will is it's your will, not mine." It's a beautiful picture of the most powerful man finally bending a knee. Let's not allow God or cause God to go to that degree of pursuit of us. Amen. Have a wonderful week. God bless you.